0: Open they're away in the golden slipper. There's a great start, and Mick Vitmaske on the extreme outside is about the first out. Jaggler on the outside lunging, but Catlin opening just in front. Jaggler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening lost lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit. The juggler. This Iron podcast Porsche's is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing, and Inglis. The $1.3 million Kosciuszko is the world's richest race for country-trained horses and the field is determined by those who draw winning tickets in the Kosciuszko sweepstakes. $5 tickets are now available through the Tab App or your local TAB outlet. 14 winning ticket holders will be drawn on September the 9th. Holders of those winning tickets will have the opportunity to select the horse they'd like to run in their entry and if successful, will then negotiate the terms of a prize money split with the owners of that horse. A $5 ticket could make it possible for you or your syndicate of friends to share in the ownership of a runner in a race which in just three runnings has achieved a high profile. Grafton-trained Bell Flyer gave his slot holders a big thrill when he won the first Kosciuszko in 2018. In 2019 it was Handle the Truth and last year It's Me from Scone. It's an exciting opportunity for bush horses to take centre stage on one of the biggest race in the world. It gives punters and racing fans the opportunity to share in the ownership of a horse running in a $1.3 million race. Remember, the 14 winning slot holders will be drawn on September the 9th. Tasmanian Racing gained a true friend and a great supporter when Peter Staples relocated from Melbourne to Hobart in 1982. For four decades now, he's proudly flown the flag for thoroughbred and harness racing on the Apple Isle in print and electronic media and in several administrative and promotional roles. He's currently media manager for the governing body TAS Racing, which controls the three racing codes and continues his long association with the historic Hobart Mercury. His racing articles appear in the widely read newspaper seven days a week and have a dedicated following. Peter is also a familiar face on the Sky Thoroughbred Central coverage of Tasmanian race meetings and is frequently heard on radio programs on the mainland. Had it not been for an inherent love of racing instilled in him at an early age, Peter Staples may well have established a career as a singer and musician. During his late teens, he was well known in Melbourne as lead singer for a popular band called Amber Light. Peter and his wife Linda fell in love with Tasmania during a brief holiday almost 40 years ago and decided to move their young family to Hobart. Neither have regretted the decision for a single moment. Here you are in 2021, Peter Staples, a parochial Taswegian and the kind of citizen envisaged by Abel Tasman, when he found the joint in 1642.
1: Well, that's a fair bit to live up to, John. (laughs) Any wonder (laughs) I'm tired. (laughs) You love the place, don't you? I do. It's God's little acre, John. And, uh, yeah, when Linda and I and uh, our young daughter and uh, six-month-old son Mm. um, moved here, um, it took us a while to settle in. but. Thing about Tasmania is they're quick to accept you if you if you're fair income and they can see that pretty clearly, mm. um, and away it goes. And we've been able to forge. I've been able to forge a career, um, and we've been able to make friends with a lot of people, um, and they're genuine and dear friends. And uh, but being involved with the racing industry really gives us an absolute gigantic family.
0: Yes. Well, Taz Racing headquarters. Is situated in a very modern complex right on Elwick Racecourse. And I hope you can see the track and that beautiful River Derwent through your office window.
1: Well, unfortunately, I had a an- thought. <laughs> <laughs> they moved us to the other side um and all the, all the main uh, uh view of the track and the Derwent River and all of those the environs around it uh, mm. uh they uh, there we uh, they're left for the uh the patrons on race day but uh, we have to uh it's mm. uh, still look it, it's still a good environment in which to work mm. and uh, we just make the most of it and i'm in a very comfortable office and uh the people on either side of me, uh, uh, we have a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> Not all of the TAS Racing staff are based there. Some operate out of Launceston.
1: Yeah, Devonport and Launceston. It's a statewide operation. Of course, governing the, the governing body covers three codes. So you can imagine the infrastructure that's required to uh, maintain all of the tracks um, and you know develop uh, new tracks and so forth, which is going to be happening next year uh, with a new harness and greyhound track in the northwest, Mm. that was owing to the uh, Devonport showgrounds being sold for property development, and uh, they'll have to find a new home. And the new track uh, site's been identified, and now things are being uh, put in place
0: to Mm. start the build. And are you at liberty to tell us where that site is? No, I'm not. Uh I won't force the issue then. Okay, now, you can
1: people, try out as you like, but you won't get an answer.
0: <laughs> that famous racetrack uh, in Hobart underwent a massive refurbishment in 2019 to the tune of about 12 million dollars. It's 28 metres wide. It's got a magnificent strathair surface, and racing resumed about 18 months ago. And I'm hearing, Pete, uh, that it's getting favourable reviews from all sections of the industry.
1: Yeah, well, it did. Look, you know, originally, and of course it's had its problems and that's that's been widely publicised in the last six months. Um, And that was basically because of the COVID situation when, see, Tasmanian Racing was the only jurisdiction in Australia that was shut down and shut us down for nearly three months. That was in April the 2nd last year and um, the government just, Put the stamp on us and said, "Sorry, can't go on." Um, and uh, we had to cop it, and uh, it was pretty hard to take. And uh, when everyone else was racing, and we were doing all of the right things to make sure that we, um, you know, had all the, uh, the PPE equipment and everything in place to make sure we were safe, and uh, but it didn't happen that way. Mm. And what happened when they shut it down? There was a, a program where we had to come back on race. So June the 14th was a date that was given. Mm. But you had to have horses getting ready and be prepared for those races. So they had an incredible number of trials on the uh, wet track. Mm. Well, there were wet tracks and um, not the best surfaces to be racing on consistently. Having 14 trials in a morning, like 16 trials in a morning, mm. and having it regularly, uh, it took its time on it. And when you've got a new track and when it cuts it out like that, it's hard for it to, to, to grow and... Mm. and to. Consolidate, um, replenish itself,
2: mm.
1: and that's what happened. And of course, when the program came back, and then there was one stage where they they had to cancel a meeting because there were um, there were sods that were put down and they were cut squares out so that they could have it so that it was going to be you know safe because it was quite bare in places. And unfortunately, a couple of those were removed on the day, and they didn't they didn't run the meeting. There was a big inquiry about it, mm. but that. That independent inquiry revealed that Taz Racing had been doing everything required of it and everything um, possible yes. to make it right. Um, so out of every negative comes a positive. but the bottom line is COVID has, has affected this world that we live in enormously and has had uh, you know caused people a lot of issues, um, especially in mental health um, and economies. Uh, and it did have that effect on our racing industry, particularly in the south at Elwick week racetrack.
0: Mm. How's the track shaping up as we speak?
1: Look, there are, it's it's a process. It's a new track, as we know. Look, we know what happened to Queensland, and mm. you know, there was you know all sorts of problems there. Um, but this the, the build itself is fantastic. It's a really good base and solid grounding with this track. The growth—they have just got to be able to manage the growth and so forth. At times, that it needs to be rested. Um, and it's got to have that rest, John. I really believe that in two years' time, we'll be having a totally different conversation mm-hmm. because it won't matter how right or shine, the track will be the best, well, an equal racing surface to what system is, mm-hmm. um, and we'll have two fantastic grass services. And of course, we have the synthetic track at Devonport, and that has been an absolute lifesaver for this industry.
0: Mm-hmm. Elwick hosts TriCode Racing. So I assume the harness and greyhound tracks were upgraded during that big operation.
1: Yeah, well, that's what happened. In 2005, um, the government at the time, the Labor government, and Paul Lennon, who to this day, as far as I'm concerned, is the best racing minister this state's ever had, mm. um, he's a racing man and understood it, and he was he was prepared to go out in a limb and put, his, put the money where his mouth was mm. um, and saw it through. And... Um, they developed this complex here that's an 800 seat capacity grandstand. Um, and they wanted to get the 2005 Inter Dominion up and running, and that was going to be the best ever. And they put a million and a half up um, for the final. Mm. Um, I'm sure Natalie Rasmus was wrapped because when Blacks are Fake won it, there was never going to be another million and a half into Dominion. No. So she was a recipient of a, an absolute bonanza. Yeah. Uh, but. It, it was a real process. You know, it finished up being a little bit rushed towards the end, and I can tell you, and you'll appreciate this, that on the night before the opening um, and the Inter-Dominion heats were being run, the night before, every employee here at our mm. was downstairs laying pavers out near where the just in front of the mounting arbor that really? exists now. Yeah just to make throwing sand down and levelling it, and that included the CEO at the time, Terry Clark. Mm. So it was a hands-on job. Everyone was behind it to make sure it looked terrific. Um, And, uh, you know, obviously when things get rushed a little bit, there are issues that happen, you know, further down the track, but Mm. nothing major, um, and they've been dealt with. But, yeah, look, it's a terrific complex. Uh, Having a tricode complex in both ends of the state Hobart, and then Launceston with the track mm. at Mowbray. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good situation. Mm. And, of course, Devonport has harnessing um, greyhounds and a new track to be built. Um, and the Sprayton track at Devonport uh, is a synthetic, and that's, uh, like I said, a lot of horses don't go on it, but the absolute majority do. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it's excellent.
0: Mm. That Inter-Dominion Grand Final you're talking about in 2005 was the last one held in Tassie. It Mm. produced the first Grand Final win by a Queensland horse and the first Grand Final win by a female driver. It had all the theatre and the atmosphere on Grand Final Day was unbelievable.
1: It was, John, and I can assure you that it was very easy to write. (laughs) Mm. Um, Like when it's got so many... You know the superlatives flowed and the uh, the emotion flowed, and there was a backstory behind Blacks of Fake as well. Mm. And it's um, and especially with Natalie and being the first female driver to win an interim, and it was like I said, it really wrote itself. And you just had to, if you were inside, you know, you know and wrote it from the heart, um, you know, you could have written, you know, two thousand words, mm. but you had to condense it into four hundred and fifty or five hundred. Yeah. Um, But it was easy to do because it was such a the enormity of it.
0: Your interest in horses was sparked by the fact that your sister Joan married a successful jumps jockey called Heck Bridges. So it wasn't long before you were going to the races and learning the language of racing. You even learned how to correctly muck out boxes at one stage.
1: That's
0: right, John. It was cheap labour.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was only three when my... My sister married Heck, mm-hmm. and uh, it was 1955, and uh, well, 1956 actually. And mm-hmm. uh, um, they used to, when I was a little bit older, not much older, they'd um, they'd come down and pick me up from um, my place. Mum mm-hmm. and Dad happily let me go with Joe and Heck, and uh, they'd take me to the races. Jane would look after me, but I was really fascinated by the horses. I loved them, mm-hmm. and. Um, Ever since I went to the Flagstaff Gardens, dad used to take, mum and dad took me up there Sundays usually and they had pony rides and I could hardly wait to jump on one. Mm. Um, but going down to my sister's place and uh, they had stables at Williamstown and they always had at least a couple of horses there mm. and I was, you know, I became attracted to them. Um, they, I had no fear of them, um, although heck taught me to make sure I was weary because, you know, they could, you know, they can do a lot of damage because <laughs> they're, you know, 500 kilo beasts and uh, mm, mm. they could do things accidentally to hurt you. So he explained all those things and I learned to muck out stables, I used to feed up um, and look forward to it. And during my school holidays when I was probably oh, eight to 10, um, those those years I was I was a regular down there at Christmas and uh, and midterm mm. and I'd uh, I'd spent a lot of time there. And initially I taught me to ride and I'd, I'd take the horses and walk them down the lane because mm. uh, I lived in Baby Street. And, yeah the lane behind went right down to the beach and then we'd walk the horses down and uh, uh, take them out for a bit of a swim. Mm.
0: How did your involvement in show business begin?
1: Well, that goes, once my sibling, my brother Ron, mm. um, Ronald Reedy's he's passed now, but um, he, was, uh, he was in the era of Cold Joy and the Joy Boys and uh, right. he was uh, – he used to have his own band called Ronnie Reed and the Thunderbirds, and mm. um, Cole joined the Joy Boys. Played Johnny Chester. Um, uh, he was playing there as well, and they um, used to uh, play down in St Kilda at Earl's Court. Mm. And uh, my sister used to take me down there and um, um, to see all the see my brother sing, which was fantastic, although she had an ulterior motive. She'd tell Mum she wants to take me out to where Ronnie's playing and she'd look after me, but as soon as we got there, mm. she'd drop me off at the hat-check box and I had to work there. Well, she went and danced the danced the night away. <laughs> um, but, oh, uh, Gloria was a smart cookie. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. um, but I loved it and, uh, yeah, and I was, of course, I just adored my brother and uh, idolised him, really, and I could see that, you know, he was singing and the thing that turned, John, that, that really made a difference in why I wanted to become a singer was a fancy little girl called Pam Spencer in grade four. Mm. <laughs> you started stage early. Stage <laughs> well, well, everyone has childhood sweethearts, and she was yeah. mine. And, uh, but I didn't know how to impress her, and... Um, and this bloke come down from Rockhampton who was a really good swimmer, Willie Westhead, and uh, you know he sort of was the limelight of the school. And I, I, I was struggling to get my Herald certificate at the yeah. North Melbourne Baths. And uh, anyway, I, um, I was a mad Elvis fan, of course, because Ronnie was, and uh, um, we had a a parent teachers night thing coming up, and um, and then a. All the kids had to do something when the, all the parents came up for the big night, and, and I said, well, what do you do? I said, oh, I can sing, mm. and I knew Wooden Heart. I'd learnt the words. I wooden knew Heart. Even the, German, even the German bits, right? Yeah, Presley recorded so anyway, that, didn't he? Yeah, he did, and mm. I got up in front of the whole class, and I sang Wooden Heart, mm. and I melted Pam Spencer's heart. Oh, dear man. And that day, I said... I know what I'm going to do when I grow up. (laughs) I'm going to be a singer in a band. (laughs) That's how easy it is.
0: (laughs) Well, you eventually became lead singer for a group called Amber Light, so I'm presuming you could hold a tune.
1: Well, yeah, look, I've done it. uh, I've sung um, in bands since I was 15, John, and I'd given it away before I moved to Tassie, um, probably for about, well, when you talked about Amber Light, I was with that band from when I was, well, 16, but the guys
2: Mm.
1: from when I was 15, um, I was um, with the guys who were in Amberlight, but it was called Pale Shade. But Mm. when we changed the name to Amberlight, and those guys, um, and the band that it was at the end, the four of us, we were like brothers. I mean, we were really, really tight, Mm. and our music reflected that tightness and um camaraderie that we shared and it took us a fair way all of the guys, we all had full time jobs we weren't professional musicians um um but I was the one that was probably more keen to do that but the other guys had trades and they wanted to finish all those and that was fair enough we still had plenty of good work and tour with the good bands and uh, well um once uh, we got to the stage we were just about to knock off a recording contract with festival Um, we broke up and that was because um, Mm. I won't make it public but the issue was but it was it was one of those awkward situations and it wasn't the guys but it was a family intrusion type thing Mm. Um, and uh, it got the guys and eventually it it broke us up Mm. and I was absolutely devastated and um, and so much so that I didn't speak to them for 36 years good heavens um, and they, they saw each other occasionally, although the lead guitarist didn't, uh, but the drummer, Peter Godden and their bass player, Bruce Parker, they were, they grew up together. They were school friends from, I think, primary school and they stayed in touch. But Bruce, bass player, mm-hmm. he put his guitar under the bed and never opened it again. Oh,
0: for yes. 30,
1: 37 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and as it turns out, when he turned 60, uh, cause I've been working on Sky Channel, um, the... Bruce's wife, Cassie, um, she made inquiries about where I was and someone mm. said, oh, they'd see me on Sky and she rang Sky, they rang me, gave me her number mm. and I rang her mm. and uh, it led to me calling Bruce on his 60th birthday on the night. Good. Well, he left the party and talked to me for nearly an hour. <laughs> ah,
2: good stuff. I'm glad <laughs> I had that to happened. to come out and find him. Yeah.
1: And look, what it did, it brought us back together and mm. we've actually played. We did a, concert. We did a, a, a whole day mm. of um, at Panton Hill in, in Victoria mm. um, where we played um, and we got all of our siblings and uh, um, all of our kids, all the kids of all the members, all play. Mm. Um, and then even the grandchildren mm. um, and did performances on that day. So that was a really special thing and mm. we are as tired as we ever were.
0: Mm. By the time... You and Linda made the move to Hobart and settled into your new lifestyle. You'd garnered some experience in general sports reporting, and there's little doubt this was the future you wanted. Now fate stepped in. You spotted an advertisement in the Hobart Mercury calling for a sports reporter. You couldn't get there quick enough.
1: I couldn't get it was like you know, stampede to the door. But anyway, there's a a, a long story of how it came about. But anyway, it happened. And uh, um, yeah, and it's like anything in life, John, if you get an opportunity, grab it with both hands, both feet, and everything else you can grasp around something and just Mm. go and do the best you can. And if that's good enough, and just be honest, um, in your endeavour, pretty much everyone will succeed in it.
0: Mm. Your sporting interests have always extended past racing. And if required, you'd have been happy to write a story about the World Rope courts Championship. But it was your (laughs) love of the game of cricket that led you to a friendship with a young Tasmanian who was destined for greatness at the highest level. You saw something special in Ricky Ponting the first time you saw him playing club cricket as a youngster.
1: I did indeed, and uh, um, I think everybody saw it. Um, it was just you know when you when you when you play a sport, um, particularly, and cricket was my first love. Don't get me wrong; it was even music. It it didn't exist. Cricket was just it. I'd eat and eat, drink and sleep at cricket ball and bat. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did you know becoming a sports writer? I thought, gee, this this guy is just. Just a, an unbelievable talent and then he was recognised you know nationally of course he went to the academy in adelaide and uh, and away it went and he's carved a career that took him to become in the most important role of any sports person in the country and that's captain of the Test team mm. and uh, to be a test captain uh, there aren't, haven't been a lot of them <laughs> in our history and uh, and he is one of the absolute best there has ever been. Mm.
0: it was about nineteen ninety eight when you were inspired to write in collaboration with Ricky a book called The First Tests of Ricky Ponting, which focused on his junior achievements, on his introduction to shield cricket and his early tests. You had a lot in common with him, didn't you? He loved the races and he loved to punt.
1: Yeah, yeah, we were like carved out of the same mould, except his mould was a bit better. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's a lot better in terms of ability. Um, but he does. His nickname's Punter, uh, and that came from his love of greyhounds. You know, he really does. He still has involvement in uh, ownership of greyhounds, and I think he's got a couple of shares and some horses. Um, but greyhounds is his first love. And, um, you know, outside of his family, um, his wife and kids, um, and his parents, um, and, uh, and Rihanna's parents, so I'm, I'm sure that, uh, um, you know, cricket and then greyhound racing, they probably... That's about the pecking order. Mm. And he's had a lot of success too.
0: Yeah, I'll say. In the first few years of your time in Tassie, a young lady called Beverly Buckingham was helping to put female jockeys on the map. She was the first female jockey to ride a winner against the men in Tasmania and in just her second season of riding, she became the first female to win a Metropolitan Premiership Anywhere in the world. She was nearing 1,000 wins, Pete, as you're aware, when a freakish fall at Elwick ended her career. You beat her to the hospital.
1: Yeah, it was. It was, uh, oh, it was uh, you know, everyone held their breath and, you know, and it sort of, and it was over the back straight. Mm. So no one could actually see and it was, it looked horrendous when it happened. Um, and my heart was in my mouth when I, when I saw it happen. And, Anyway, she eventually was taken to hospital, and was the ho- went to the hospital uh, that night, and I was with trainer Gary White, to um, mm. whom she rode a Melbourne Cup, uh, a Hobart Cup winner a year, mm. and had a great association with Gary, and um, and Ted, her late dad, was there as well, and um, we're in the in the waiting room, um, trying to find out, you know, what the damage was, and mm. she came out on a gurney, and she was being wheeled off, and I walked up the corridor to where she was. Uh, from where she was being um, taken, mm. and I put my hand on the on the gurney, and, and she looked up and she said, "Oh, Pete, I'm scared." Oh gosh, did she? And for the first time, I I now know mm. what fear looks like, mm. and that's what it was in her eyes. It was you just couldn't explain it; words couldn't explain it, um, and of course. The result was that the diagnosis was that she'd be a a paraplegic and Mm. uh, quadriplegic, whatever, and that was first diagnosis. And she knew then she was going to have to live her life um, without ever riding again, without ever walking again. And, Mm. you know, it'd be daunting for a woman of her ability and in the prime of her career, um and for that to happen was absolutely tragic. But Mm. Bev was one of the toughest cookies I ever met. She could match it verbally and physically with any of the blokes out on the racetrack.
0: Oh, my word, she could, yeah.
1: And uh, and plus her ability, she just had a way with horses they'd run for her and she she talked to them all the way through races and Mm. she just communicated with these animals. And um, Mm. um, anyway, eventually she, you know, she was able to, one morning she woke up and, She got up. She actually was able to move her legs, and she couldn't believe it. And I was one of the first she called. Mm. (laughs) So Well, you um, broke the story,
0: didn't you, that Beverly? Yeah, I did, actually, yeah, the next day.
1: Well, she rang me and she said, I've got a nice story you might be able to write. (laughs) Mm. And, uh, of course, I probably cried halfway up there. And when I got there with the photographer, Tony Palmer, um, Mm. yeah, it was just – it was the story – that every racing journal would want to write. Oh yeah, um, and uh, I got to do that, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it was one of the one of the best stories that I'd written. Um, mm. But I had a never felt better about writing a story than I did about no. writing that one.
0: Well, Beverly, after nine years in Sydney, only recently moved back to Devonport after twenty years out of Tasmania. And I believe you spotted her at the races a week ago.
1: Yeah, it did. Um, well, I went up there when we we inducted Bev into the Tasmanian Racing Hall of Fame. She was an inaugural inductee in two thousand and five. Mm. Anyway, two years ago, she became inducted as a legend. And we needed. She couldn't travel by by plane. She just can't do that because mm. um, she still has, you know, the effects of that. You know injuries she sustained yep. still prevents her from doing that neurologically and um and in other physical areas so yeah. um, Linda and I went up to Sydney to see her and uh, while there I recorded um uh, did a video recording with her um mm. so I could play that out at the night mm. of the of the function and uh, she agreed to that, but at that point, I think she started to think, ah. Oh, Mm. Maybe I'd like to go back to Tassie. Yeah. And she admitted that that is the, the point where she started to really think about it because her daughter Tara mm. is an absolute gem. Um, you know, she dotes on her mother and she has done for a long time. Um, and of course she was at the lunch as well and she just talked about you know things with her mum and you know they were quite frank with everything you know between each other and and I thought well this is lovely wouldn't it be great if they came back anyway I planted the seed not that it was my risk that I did it all mm. I just planted the seed yeah. and that's from where it grew that's it so mm. uh, but she's she's in a great place now back home she's about uh, she'll buy a property with Tara property next year lovely at um, the moment they're living at uh, I think Turner's Beach. Mm. And uh, and everyone is so thrilled to have their Bev back living in Tassie. And that's what they call it, their Bev.
0: Yeah, of course. <laughs> Pete. I'll get you to stand by for a moment. We're going to clear a commitment on the podcast and we'll be back with Peter Staples after this. It came as no surprise when English Managing Director Mark Webster announced that South Australian Gtra, would fill the company slot in the Everest at Randwick on October the 16th. G Tra ran in the English slot last year coming from well back to finish a strong third to Classic Legend. The horse stayed in Sydney and two weeks later won the one million dollar yes 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 stakes at Rose Hill Gardens. Not long after, he presented with a knee problem, which required surgery for the removal of a bone chip and then a long spell. On resuming, Gtra Tra ran third in the Group 1 Goodwood handicap and was then taken to Brisbane where he was unplaced in the Kingsford Smith Cup, only 2.8 lengths from the winner after a wide run and a pretty hefty check in the straight. Fittingly, he was purchased by trainer Gordon Richards at the 2017 England Premier Sale for just $41,000. He's taken his large ownership syndicate on a fantastic journey with 10 wins and 12 placings for more than $3.2 million. Inglis and Gtra get together for the second time in the world's richest race on turf, the fifth running of the Tab Everest at Royal Randwick on October the 16th. My special guest is journalist, commentator, and former outstanding vocalist Peter Staples in Hobart. Pete, uh, Tassie's never been short of a top jockey. You've been a Brendan McCool fan for a long time.
1: Oh, indeed. Brendan, we don't win as many premierships, 14, as he's done um, without being pretty good at your trade. And he has proven time and time again his, his judgment, um, his intestinal fortitude, his um, ability to create opportunities in races. And when it comes to one having to be ridden out, strong hands and heels, uh, he has no peer. Um, and that's why he's been so successful and is regarded probably still as the best jockey still riding in this state.
0: Craig Newitt has been another wonderful ambassador for Tasmanian racing He started his career there He moved to Victoria as an apprentice And has gone on to reach amazing heights More than 2,000 winners, 33 Group 1s He moved back to Tassie a few years ago But returned to Melbourne when COVID struck And he's still there What a strong, vigorous, determined race rider he is
1: well, in terms of well, Froggy's an absolute ripper. He's a he's a ripper bloke, he's a ripper jockey, um and he's a ripper, a, ripper ambassador for this state. Mm. Um when he went away he was just a youngster and of course it was all new and he he just took the world, you know. You know, the world was his oyster, and he just mm. took it by storm in Victoria. Apprentice to Lee Friedman, uh, Hall of Famer, and uh, he just went from strength to strength. He had a a, a stumbling block that he hit. Uh, he was involved in uh, in a, a huge controversy with regard to you know telling talkies mm. to the stewards, and Des Gleeson had to really you know reading the riot act, and he suffered badly from it. You know, in terms of mm. penalty, yeah. so he was disqualified for quite a amount of time, and that you know just He's tough and he just took it on the chin and said, Right, I made it blue, move on. Let's just let my writing ability, you know, mm. do the talking when I get back. And he did. Um, and he got back, and, um, you know, they say cream rises to the top, and uh, he's a full packer
0: I've got to ask you about your second book, Pete, which was published in 2014. It's called Mick and the Cleaner the story of the battling trainer and the $10,000 yearling who won 19 races, six of them in Melbourne. He won two Group 2s, he won a Group 3 and he was the first Tasmanian bred horse to run in a Cox plate. Now, it wasn't a case of you being commissioned to write this book, is it? You wanted to do it. It was your idea.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I had to go and find a publisher. That's all I needed and... Uh, hmm. Um I just um Mick was a it's a terrific bloke and he, he was a an absolute he's one of the real characters of racing in this state, John knew and I'm hoping that the I, I portrayed him as that type of person in the book. I'm pretty sure I did.
0: Well I've read the um, book and I'd have to agree you certainly did.
1: He's uh yeah, and he's like his aboriginality he was proud of and we wanted to make sure that we that was forefront. Um mm. and uh he uh his love of the animals was terrific um mm. he was um, he could you know have a lend of the truth occasionally <laughs> <laughs> bend it and twist it occasionally um, which is a funny line I'll tell you towards the end of this but um he he loved this horse um to the point where can you imagine going out to the backyard and uh, getting a ball and waving it around, and then the dog sort of crouches down on his front feet and mm. waiting for you to throw it. Mm. I can tell you I saw the cleaner do that with Mick.
0: Good heavens.
1: I'm serious. He did that. He just reacted to him like that. He, yeah. And as the old saying, excuse the French but he wouldn't fart unless Bill, unless Mick said he could. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> and he, it was just one of those relationships that, that you know, and I'm sure the horse performed because Mick knew his little idiosyncrasies and um, nuances that only trainers who are really good trainers mm. can do. You know, they, they identify these things and they work on it mm. and they don't push a horse in this direction because they know it's not good for what mm. isn't quite right with it. Mm. And uh, that's the secret of being a really good trainer, I guess. And, but as a, as a bloke, he was a real character. Although, in Benny and Truth a little bit and so forth, the first 20,000 words of the of the story, I yeah. had to tear up.
0: You started again.
1: I had to because mm. a bit of it didn't start to add up. And I went, hang hey, on, Mick. I said, this, this doesn't tie in with what's going on here. He said, oh, I might have got that wrong. Oh, I wasn't quite clear on that. Mm. I said, mate, let's just start again, okay? Mm. But this time, if you're not sure, don't say it until you are, yeah. and he said okay, so I screwed him up, and then we started again, but that yeah. was fine, you know it was it was better because he really started to think about it, and then we got into areas that he may not have got into, had that not happened, mm. um, and it became a more of a real personal story and the torment that he went through when he had a gambling issue, he had a, a drinking issue, he had marital issues, and um, him and his wife, a late wife Linnie, they used to fight like cats and dogs. Mm. And um, he was really open about the whole thing. And I, when speaking to his children, mm. they verified it in no uncertain terms. Mm. So, but now anyway, it's all in the book, except there's a there is a lot it isn't in the book. Um, but if they ever decide to make it into a telemovie, it'd mm. be incredible ingredients to make it a success.
0: <laughs> mm. And it's Mick Burles who died much too soon at 69 oh, years of age.
1: Well, Emphysema got him, and McCoy, I mean, he, you know, he's a, he's a bugger. He just loved to smoke, and he was told he couldn't get a lung transplant because he still smoked, and mm. um, he was on the nebulizer and taking the, you know, oxygen tank to the races with him. <laughs> mm, <dear laughs> and, me. Yeah. Have a little break and then take the take the mask off and have a smoke. Mm. Like you know, you're just 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 trying to keep yourself. But that was Mick. Um, you just dealt with it. And uh, I remember at his funeral, um, and they asked me to do the eulogy, mm. and uh, and I was talking about him, and this just, just brought the house down. And I actually said one of the things that Mick said to me and it stuck with me forever. And remember what I told you about the first twenty thousand words. Mm. And he said to me once, fate. Never bullshit (laughs) a (laughs) bullshitter.
0: Good advice,
1: good advice. And I thought, that's good advice, so I remember that. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Now, Pete, time's on the wing, but I just want to ask you about a few well-known and very successful Tasmanian gallopers uh, during your time there. You loved a horse called Golden Serpent, who was trained by Charlie Goggin for most of his long career. He won seven stakes races in Tassie. He went to Lee Friedman for a while, and he won a stakes race in Melbourne. Wasn't he a good horse?
1: He was a he was a terrific horse, John. He had. He had a terrific turn of foot. Um, he had great endeavour, uh, well balanced, um, good size about him, and he just and he was a kind horse. And uh, he um, he he won when he won races, he won them with authority. Um, but they never saw the best of him in Melbourne. Um, mm-hmm. He, all of his best efforts were, were at home in Tassie, mm. um, although he was very competitive over there. And uh, uh, But he was good. Um, uh, another horse that in more recent years, a horse called GG's Black Flash. Mm. And he, this is a horse that won a Newmarket Handicap and also won Hobart and Launceston Cups. Mm. Um, so he was proficient at 1,200 metres and uh, in the best quality mm. handicap. For sprinters in the state, mm. and won our two feature cups. Like yeah. he was an absolute um, great horse, and he was he was actually diagnosed with a huge tumour on his stomach and mm. uh, his bow, and he actually been performing with it. Mm. The operation that he had to remove it, um, the the vet um, told me that he'd never known a horse to be so resilient and courageous because. Mm. In less than six hours after the operation, the major operation, mm. he was out picking, having to pick a grass. Yeah, and uh, he was just an absolute freaking. Constitution. Um, he,
0: was, he won 22 races, Pete, 27 placings, 1.2 million, and as you said, a Hobart and Launceston Cup. GG's yeah. Black Flash.
1: Yeah, he was terrific. And uh, another horse that was great was Admiral. Um, he was very, very good, trained by Barry Campbell, um, mm-hmm. and he, uh, he contested, um, uh, a group one, um, Australian Guineas, finished fifth in it, I think. Um, and, uh, um, Dwayne Dunn said he should have run closer if he'd got a bit of luck. Um, mm-hmm. but he was, he was terrific. Um, look, there's been a lot of good horses in Tassie, mm-hmm. mate, and, uh, and I'm sure there's plenty more to come and none better than Mystic Journey, of course, and she won. The Australian yeah. Guineas and went on to win the inaugural All Star Mile worth five million. So, yeah. um, her little knee chips have been removed, and she can be back in the spring or
0: summer. Right, she may even be in work now, Peter. We'd be getting close.
1: Yeah, not quite.
0: Mm. Well, Mystic Journey has joined an elite list of Tasmanian horses to win at the top level on the mainland, including Piping Lane and Beer Street. Siddeston was one of the best and several other really nice horses, but can there be any doubt? Malua is the greatest of all the Tasmanians. He raced in the late 19th century. He won 12 races from five and a half furlongs to three and a quarter miles. He won an Oakley Plate, a Newmarket, a Melbourne Cup, an Australian Cup, and a Grand National Hurdle as a nine-year-old. Get your head around that.
1: Well, that's one of the reasons why he was an inaugural induction to the Australian Racing Hall of Fame. Mm. And, uh, of course, he was an inaugural inductee to the Tassie Hall of Fame. It was a late Amazigh for that. And mm. he'll eventually become a legend, I'm sure. And um, he's... Yeah, they probably don't make him like they used to. <laughs> mm. um, and he's one of those. And, and he came out of Kelstock, um, which is a stud that's produced multiple Group 1 winners and, and, uh, and other Melbourne Cup winners. And uh, um, I think... Um, yeah, you know, it's – and the number of trainers and, um, you know, history tells us that if you wanted to own a horse or race a horse in those that era, then you'd have to look no further than Kelstock. Um, mm. That was both in Melbourne, Sydney and in Tassie.
0: Yeah. Well, Pete, you've been a regular contributor for a number of years now to Sky Racing programs on television and radio, and your devotion to Tasmanian racing comes across every time. It's a great opportunity for you to showcase Tassie Racing.
1: Well, if you. Tassie has always been the mouse that roared, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. When everyone wanted to, you know, put their, the kibosh on Sunday racing, Tassie said, come on, give it to us, we'll have a crack. Mm. And no sooner did it work, after it started, the people realised that it was a, a, a valuable asset, they all wanted to get in part of it. And now Tassie sort of gets put on the back burner sometimes, um, but they forget who started it all. Mm. Um, And that's that's the same with a few things in racing. Um, Tasmania is innovative um, and prepared to have a crack. And I think that's the way Tasmanians live their lives, and uh, that's why it's such a great place to live.
0: Peter, time's up been an absolute delight to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. And I know you're working as we speak. Uh, You've got a race meeting today at Elwick and you're wearing a couple of hats.
1: Well, it's an absolute pleasure, John. And I I really thank you for the opportunity um, for for letting me tell my story. And uh, I couldn't think of anybody better to tell it to. And I am absolutely honoured and privileged um, that you'd asked me to be involved.
0: My pleasure, Peter Staples on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound.